You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. I'm Nick. If uh, we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm a pastor here in Illini Life, and I am so glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you've not heard me say this, you are going to hear me say it just about every chance I get. This is the time in our service that I love, the time in our week that I love when we get to do a Bible study together. When we get to engage and see, we get to dig into God's word and see what does he have for us here. I am passionate about all of us engaging in the word and seeing what God has for us. I hope you grow in your love and are encouraged by your engagement in the word with the Lord as you're with us here in your time in Alani Life. I hope you had a chance this week to join in a small group and uh, study our passage. It's really a, a core part of our rhythm. To, we sort of come here on Sunday prepared, our hearts, our minds. We've had a chance to look at the passage for the Lord to be working in our, in our lives about the passage, to be prepared for worship, to be prepared for what he has to share with us. And if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been engaged in the Gospel of Mark, that that's where we've been studying week after week, right? We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark and each week looking at different passages, asking uh, the question of what it looks like to live more with Jesus, like Jesus, and for Jesus. We've been challenged in our actions, our thoughts, and our beliefs to, to be that way. And all along, we've been saying, or I've been saying at least, uh, Mark is a great place for us to do this, right? Because it gives us snapshot after snapshot of Jesus' ministry, begging the question of who is Jesus. And that's what Mark wants us to answer. That's what he wants his readers to see, what he wants us to see. And today, what is great is we get to see Jesus answer that question directly. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, in our passage today, Jesus answers that question head on. Who is Jesus? From his mouth, we will get to hear it today. As we turn to our passage, I, I like to do this, like to frame in a little bit the, the topic, the question, get us thinking a little bit about our lives and how this is applicable, right? And so I have a, I have a question for you, a scenario to think of, imagine. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you decide to hide or obscure part of your identity, either for social benefit or to avoid conflict or, or maybe to avoid assumptions or stereotypes that might come at you? find this, maybe, maybe it's just me. I find this often in my life. I find I'm tempted towards this direction to obscure or hide or, or maybe only share part of my identity. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that, right? I'm a pastor. So when somebody asks me what I do and I say, I'm a pastor, you can see the non-religious people immediately get very physically uncomfortable, right? They, oh, you're judging me. Or they'll immediately apologize for their language or their, their behavior or anything they've recently said. So I worry. If I tell them who, who I am, what I do, ah, they, might, they might feel judgment. They might have some assumptions about what I believe or what I think of them. Or they might think I'm going to talk to them about Jesus and then they're going to get uncomfortable, which I probably want to talk to them about Jesus. So that's Okay. There's, there's other places that it's, it's less innocuous. It's just not as, as you know, blatant. It's like, uh, I care about the person, right? I'm, uh, some of you know I'm an accomplished triathlete. And I don't say that to brag. I just say that I've accomplished a lot in the sport of triathlon. I coach the university team here. I've, I've done a lot. And when I meet somebody who's new in the sport and they're excited about it, I often find myself hiding my accomplishments or not talking about my results or, or, or dodging those questions when they ask them. 
And it's because I don't want them to feel like their accomplishments are less. I don't want their passion or their excitement to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm lesser. Because they're not, and I'm excited for them. And I love the sport, and I love sharing it with them. So I want to not talk about me. I want to talk about them. And so I hide that part of me. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, uh, maybe in your study group, the, the question of when you're going to get together comes up, and, and you're busy on Thursday night with Bible study. But rather than say that you're busy with Bible study, you say, oh, I, I have another commitment on Thursday. I, I can't, another commitment on Thursday night. Or, um, or someone asks, where were you on, on Sunday morning? We missed you at breakfast. And you say, oh, well, I, I, was, I was just busy. Or I slept in. You don't want to tell them you went to church, right? Then you might have a conversation about your faith, or it might be awkward, or, or maybe they might make assumptions about you, just like they make assumptions about me as a pastor, right? Whatever it is, I imagine we've all encountered places where it feels maybe uncomfortable to live our full identity, maybe our identity in Christ, to be fully known by those around us. Help me get back on notes. <laughs> uh, so I imagine I'm not alone. And, and if that's not your reality, please come talk to me. I'd love to learn from you. I'd love to learn how to be more that way. I just thought about this. You know, I remember being working in my career before I was a pastor and uh, coworkers uh, were having coffee. And they're talking about those, those people, those religious people, right? Those Christians. And it was another place where I felt like, oh, if they knew I was a Christian, would they have this conversation? I could speak up and say I'm a Christian right now and change the conversation. We could talk about what Christians really believe, how they're perceived, and address that. But my temptation was to shy away from it, be more comfortable and not rock the boat or change the status quo. Whatever it is, I'm sure we've all stepped into this or felt this at times. Well, today, why am I talking about this? Today in our passage, we're going to see Jesus do the exact opposite. Jesus does the exact opposite of everything I just talked about, all the ways that we're tempted to hide our identity, to obscure it. In our passage, we're going to see Jesus clearly state his identity despite the circumstances. Under arrest and facing a death sentence, Jesus claims his identity, makes it known who he is despite the cost, knowing what's before him. He doesn't hide his identity when his life is on the line. In fact, for the very first time, he makes it absolutely clear who he is to these religious leaders. And for that, they sentence him to death. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let me jump into our passage and start unpacking that. Let me uh, see how this goes. Uh, first, Mark is going to set the scene for us, right? And I kind of think of this as the, this passage in three ways. There's the scene. Mark is laying it out for us. There's the testimony. They're trying to find the dirt on Jesus. And then there's his claim of identity and their response. And that's how we're going to see it in three parts this morning. So Mark sets the scene. Jesus has been betrayed by his disciple. Uh, he's been arrested when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane after they had eaten the Passover meal. And he's alone. He's brought before the religious leaders with nobody, just guards under arrest. And that's where we find Jesus. Pick up Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to pick up in 53, and we're going to read uh, about 12 verses this morning. But just the first few verses here, the scene. Mark says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
That's the scene. That's where we're at. That's where we find Jesus. He's been arrested. He's led to the high priest, the top religious leader of the day, the the one in charge. And the rest of the religious leaders, they're all assembled there. It's the middle of the night. The fact that there is this grand assembly points to their, their agenda, their plan all along. These guys have been planning for a while. They've, they've paid off a, a traitor to get him here. They're ready and waiting to be assembled when Jesus is arrested and brought into the, priest, the high priest's courtyard. A mass of religious leaders out for Jesus. And Jesus, Mark tells us that, that Peter, he's followed at a distance, right? And he's present. So th- this helps explain how we have this story. For, for one thing, uh, Mark uh, knows all these details because he was a friend of Peter and Peter shared them. He was there present to hear them. But it also serves another purpose. And if you know the scriptures, you know the story of Peter. And you know what's about to happen after this passage with Peter. In this very place, Peter, watching Jesus arrested, Peter will deny that his affiliation with Jesus three times, just as Jesus foretold. Three times, Peter will hide his identity, will obscure the truth of his affiliation with Jesus. All while Jesus faces death for claiming his. The contrast is massive here. What's also noteworthy in our passage, or in, this, in this setting, in the scene, is Mark tells us the agenda of the council. It's clear from the start. They're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. There's no uncertainty about what's up right now. All along, right? All along, Mark has been illustrating how Jesus has been agitating the religious establishment, how they're aggravated with him, how, how they, they're frustrated, and they've been seeking to put him to death. You know, they're, they're outraged that he's been healing people and forgiving sins. He's been teaching people about God. They've grown jealous with his following and they're they're concerned that he's disrupting the status quo. All through the gospel, we've been seeing this, right? Up until this point. They're outraged that he would teach against them, that that he would reveal how they've got it wrong and how they've misrepresented God and misapplied the scriptures. And so for a while now, they've concluded, let's get rid of this guy. Let's, Let's kill him. And this night, In the middle of the night, after the Passover meal, this is their chance. They've arrested him. He's alone, and there's a massive crowd of the religious elite around, ready to do what they've been planning and and scheming. The trial commences, right, with their agenda, seeking evidence that they need to justify the hate in their hearts and put him to death. He's surrounded by hostility surrounded by people who want his head. And see, our, our, our lives may not hang in the balance, right? We might not face this kind of hostility. We might not be this isolated with people calling for our death. But we certainly find ourselves in hostile territory. I know I feel that at times. Our society, our culture, it's, it's, it's increasingly post-Christian is the way that most uh, sociologists talk about it. It's even anti-Christian, I would describe it at times. I was listening to uh, one, one expert uh, recently on a podcast describe post-Christian society, what that means. And he said, uh, just, just a mere 30 years ago, it was seen as advantageous to be a Christian. And if you were applying for a job, that might set you apart as somebody who was seen as more reliable, a person of character, of integrity. And I wonder, 
you put that on your job description now or your, your resume? Do you talk about that in your, your applications? People know you're a Christian. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage? I don't think it is an advantage anymore like it was 30 years ago. I think that's why some of us feel those, those pressures, those temptations to hide a bit of our identity. Another way that I can get at that is recently a seminary professor of mine was telling me he was invited to speak at a journalism class here at the university. And the topic was, explain to us the Christian worldview so we as journalists can understand that and write to that. Now, the, the, what our conversation was, the seminary professor and I, was uh, the, the pretext here is that the Christian worldview is not a major worldview. It's not understood. It's not common knowledge. So these journalism students who have no exposure to it or no understanding need to be taught it because some of their readers may come from that perspective. So they need to be aware of it so they can write to that. Post-Christian, that's what that means. No longer the majority, maybe even the minority, or seen as undesirable. At best, at best, I would say our, our, our society is post-Christian, our post-Christian society, it's neutral. It's okay for us to be Christians. At worst, it can be hostile towards us. So I think at times we find ourselves in hostile environments and are tempted to hide our identities. So I, we're not surrounded with the hostility Jesus is. I think we can identify a bit with it, right? We're not, people aren't calling for our heads. But we're tempted in minor ways when we faced hostility to hide our identities. How much more do you think Jesus was tempted to hide his identity when his life was on the line? Well, let's keep reading and see, see what happens, right? How does this unfold? The scene's been set. So next, we're, we're going to hear how the crowd goes about trying to find their needed testimony, how, how to carry out their plan, right? How are they going to execute that? And so Mark jumps in, in uh, picking up in verse 56. He says, Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. So the assembled mob, bent on condemning Jesus to death, searching for testimony to condemn him, is here and they can't agree. And see, the, the Jewish law, it required that the testimony of, of an individual be, there be multiple people that, that support that, that there be two or three agreeing witnesses, and they couldn't even find two or three agreeing witnesses to any of these false accusations. Couldn't make anything stick on this trial against Jesus. Mark tells us twice, he goes out of his way to repeat twice, their testimony couldn't agree, giving us a more specific example of how it didn't agree. It couldn't make anything stick to Jesus. So the high priest, frustrated, addresses Jesus, right? Now, throughout, throughout Jesus' ministry, this has been true, right? He's, he's frustrated them, but he hasn't broken the law. He hasn't done anything worthy of death. Other would have seized him right there, right? He's often just agitated them because he's speaking against them or he's illuminating why they're wrong or he's 
doing what God does and healing people. Right? If he had, if he had done anything worthy of death, they would have already saw it and, and hauled him away in the moment. But here in the middle of the night, with their like-minded friends, this is their chance. Maybe we can get two of you to lie and agree together and we can put him to death that way. Yeah. And, and Mark, he, he tells us that, that there's uh, this one testimony, right? He says, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple, right? And then I'll build it with, without hands, uh, which uh, is, is a gross misrepresentation of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, talking about his own body and the resurrection, if, if it's even something that Jesus came close to saying. Most likely, it's just not. It's not anything Jesus said. It's not anything Jesus likely said because there would be no reason to build a new temple, Right? Think about it. The, the, Jesus is, is, knows what's ahead of him. He knows the cross. His sufficient sacrifice on the cross is coming. And the Holy Spirit is coming to dwell among believers. There is no need for a temple for sacrifices in the presence of God anymore. The people of Jesus that follow Jesus are the new temple. We are the new temple. There would have been no reason for Jesus to say he's building a new temple uh, without hands. I digress. Jesus didn't need to explain it, so maybe I didn't need to explain it. Uh, the mob, they're, they, they're confused. They're contradicting themselves. Their testimony doesn't agree. No charges are sticking to Jesus. And so the high priest, he's frustrated. and He addresses Jesus in, in what amounts to, to basically, what do you have to say for yourself? Come on, speak up. What are you, these people are saying things about you. Are you saying nothing? You have nothing to say about what they have to say against you? And Jesus remains silent. He offers no rebuttal. He offers no clarification. No defense for the conflicting accusations, the false accusations shouted about him. He's surrounded by hostility, yet remains non-defensive. He remained silent. He didn't argue. He didn't get combative. He didn't defend his reputation. He was silent before his accusers. Just as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied he'd be. In Isaiah 53, it's a beautiful uh, passage in Isaiah. It's, uh, we studied it last year, I believe. The, this, this, uh, one of the servant songs, the suffering servant. Beautiful passage talking about Jesus. Years and years and years before Jesus would come. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Standing before false accusations, a hostile mob, and an agitated high priest, Jesus remained silent. He wasn't defensive. He didn't dispute the falsehood spoken against him. He remained silent, just as Isaiah foresaw. Let's keep reading and see how it wraps up, how our passage wraps up, right? We got to get to the claim. Who is Jesus? How is he answering that question? We pick back up in verse, uh, the second half of 61. And here we're going to see the high priest address Jesus again, more frustrated this time. We're going to see Jesus respond. And then we're going to see the mob respond. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? He calls to the council. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Disheartening, hard, hard to see Jesus in that space. There's more to come, isn't there? We know if we know the story. The high priest, he addressed Jesus for the second time, right? And this time it's a very direct question. Who are you, right? He asked him, are you the Christ, the, the Messiah, the promised one, the, ble- the he says the son of the blessed, right? Which is, which is just his pious way of avoiding using the name of God, right? Because he's a, he's a pious Jew, a, a religious Jew, the high priest, right? Something that he would have naturally done, avoided the, the name of God. So he asked him, are you the Messiah, the promised one, the, the, the one from David's line who would be king once again? Are you the son of God? To which Jesus responds simply and bluntly, as simply as he possibly can. I am. He affirms he is the Messiah, the son of God, the promised king of David, the one all Israel has been looking for and waiting for. But he doesn't stop there. He, doesn't, he, he goes on to blow their minds. It's incredible what he says. He says, you will see the son of man, which is how he's referred to himself so far in the gospel. That's not surprising to hear. You'll see him seated at the right hand of power. And that's God's power coming on the clouds of heaven. In no uncertain terms, For them, and for a student of the Old Testament, he just claimed to be the promised Messiah, wielding the power of God and holding the authority, dominion, and judgment over all creation. He doesn't just say, you got it, that's me. The Christ is here, right? You found me. No. No, he went on to to say, you're right. And then he pointed to the key passages in Scripture about his divine identity and his nature, the power he holds. Let me show you what he's doing here. Let me, let's, let's fill this image out a little bit. Psalm 110. It's a, it's a messianic psalm. The psalm is a, a, a collection of songs in, in the Old Testament. This one's written by King David. Commonly quoted, uh, it was commonly quoted, it's known, it's, it's descriptive of what the Messiah would be like. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus has said, you will see me sitting at the right hand. He's referencing back here. The Messiah sitting at the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of God at the seat of power, sharing in the power of God, ruling over, judging over the world. His enemies made his footstool. Those hostile against him, beneath him, his footstool, his feet resting on them. 
They're put beneath him, no more conse- of no consequence to him anymore. Jesus says, this is me. They knew this passage. They knew exactly what he was referencing. And he goes on. He references a passage in Daniel, the, the prophet Daniel, an Old Testament uh, prophet. We studied this last year. You can go back and refer to it. Chapter 7 is the key, or this is the final vision, uh, or the vision of the, the end times, where the Son of Man comes on the clouds and slays the blaspheming little horn on the head of the great beast that's the evil one, and evil is destroyed the spoken word of God. The Son of Man reigns forever. It's a beautiful picture of the end times and, and of God winning the final battle. And here's, here's the image that Jesus is referring to. Daniel chapter 7, we read, Daniel tells us, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. That's Jesus. That is his everlasting kingdom. Jesus. Daniel saw the end times. He saw when the evil one would be destroyed, when the Son of Man would reign everlasting over all creation, all peoples would worship and serve him. And Jesus says, this is me. Maybe less overtly, many of us see here one final connection. Jesus drawing on the very name of God in his statement. Identifying himself with God the Father, Yahweh. The Greek phrase Jesus used here is ego emi, which literally means I am or I exist. It's, it's the best Greek translation of the Hebrew name of God that God speaks of himself to Moses in Exodus. Moses, if you remember the story, before the burning bush on Mount Horeb speaks with God. And God directs him and sends him back to Egypt to free his people, to lead them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses says, who should, I, who should I say sent me? Who are you? And God responds with his name. He says, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. In Hebrew, it's Yod, He, Va, He. Yahweh is the transliteration you may have heard before. It's the name of God, the self-existent one. The Hebrew phrase that was so sacred, a Jewish person would not utter it themselves. It's the unpronounceable. The reverence for it was so high, it would be unthinkable to say it. The name of God should not be spoken. It's too holy. It's too other. And Jesus' response of I am echoes this passage, echoes the name of God. It echoes back to the self-existent one. And this, this bothers the priest just a little bit. All this bothers the priests just a little bit. So Jesus, surrounded by a mob, an agitated mob now, who have been hurling false accusations of him, yet he remains non-defensive, just as Isaiah prophesied he would. 
And then when given the chance, he states his true identity, making it absolutely clear who he is. Furthering their agitation, he states his identity despite the consequences. All of this, all of that imagery is what Jesus has just unloaded for them. All of this is why the priest tears his robes. All of this is why they work themselves into a frenzy. They're appalled that Jesus would make such claims. This is blasphemy in their eyes. That that Jesus would dare use the name of God. That he would claim the power and authority of God. That he would claim divine origin and dominion and judgment over creation. This was blasphemy to them. Of course, it would be blasphemy if he wasn't Jesus. See, Jesus has just drawn and acted from the law, the prophets, and the writings, the three main divisions of the Hebrew Bible. He's made it absolutely clear his point. All of Scripture has pointed to me and has revealed who I am, is what he's saying. For the high priest, this high priest, he's wondering how could this man standing before him? The man he despises. How could this possibly be the one that God has been talking about, telling about, promised? How could this be the one they've been waiting for? So in disgust, in outrage, he tears his robes and he declares, Jesus is a blasphemer. He's worthy of death and he calls for everyone to agree with him. And they do. They do and they begin ridiculing him. They shame him. They mock him. They disgrace him. They spit on him and they strike him. Jesus finally claimed his identity. He finally said who he was. He states his divine power and that it comes, uh, that that he, he comes from God. He has all authority and dominion. And in response, the religious leaders, they flex their earthly muscles and they hit him and they spit on him and they shame him. Their mere earthly power is all they have. They abuse him. They prepare to send him off to Rome because they don't even have the authority to execute him. They have to ask Rome to do that for them. Jesus claimed his identity despite the ultimate cost before this hostile mob. And so this morning, what I want us to see is as we try to live like Jesus, we can stand firm in our identity, not hiding or obscuring portions of it, no matter what the cost. It cost Jesus everything, and he did it. He set the example for us. Despite knowing what was coming, he made clear who he was. Living like Jesus means standing firm in our identity, in our identity as Jesus' people. See, before a mob seeking his head, Jesus stated his identity anyway. Knowing what the outcome would be, he stands firm in the truth and claims who he is. No matter what the situation we face, we can do likewise. We can claim our identity as Christians, even if it means being misunderstood, watching people make assumptions about me as a pastor, being dismissed, ridiculed, or uh, by a post-Christian society. And so, as, as I wrap up this morning, I, wanna, I want us to consider a hard truth. A hard truth because we here, and we've talked about this a lot, 
we here are people of privilege, of, of power, of, uh, of status. You're the brightest in the country here at the U of I. You're wealthy because you have a house and food and, and clothing more than a lot of the world has. And so as I struggle with that reality of what my life looks like, a pastor, affluent because I'm here and, and with you, I think more often than not, I'm probably the religious leaders in this passage. Maybe you, you are too. Or maybe you could identify. See, the hard truth about this passage is the aristocracy, the rich, powerful, those charged with preservation of, of law and order, of the Jewish way of life, they carried out what they thought was in the best interest of the country. And it also happened to align with the best interests of themselves. They condemned Jesus to death. They missed who he was. They overlooked his identity, despite him saying it clearly to them. See, they thought they had religion and God figured out. And when God stepped into creation and challenged them, challenged their assumptions, their misrepresentations of him, they killed him for it. They killed him for it. In, in the most blunt terms, Jesus was killed by a self-serving mob of religious leaders in control of the temple who were intent on preserving their power, their way of life. And as a result, they missed the power of God. They missed who Jesus was. They missed his identity. Let us, as people of privilege, of people of status, not do the same. Let us not miss where God is active in our world, in our lives. Let's not seek to preserve a way of life, a political or social agenda, a historic role or place of the church and society. Let's not seek to own, or let's not seek to preserve our own power or influence. Let's seek to hold our identity in Christ, to identify with God, be his people, yielded to him. And what he's doing. Alani Life, let us find our identity in Jesus, not in the roles we play, the positions or titles we hold, the power we have. Let's not shy away from stating that we are Jesus' people when we have the opportunity to do so. Would you pray with me?